unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And coming up on this week's show, Tim Brando from Fox Sports. We will discuss the upcoming college football season, the soon-to-be-expanded college football playoff, Gus Malzani, UCF, Josh Heupel in Tennessee, and a little golf talk, too. Timmy B. standing by in the virtual green room and will join us in just a few moments. Colin Malacara wins the Open Championship across the pond. How about this? Two majors. He has won each time the first time he's played in the event. <laughs> that is spectacular. And poor Louis Usazen, yet not quite runner-up this time, but, you know, Boy, rounds one through three, he he owns the joint, but in the final round, not able to cash in the chips. So uh, the majors are done for this year, and golf will get out of football's way very, very soon. Boy, I wish we would have had this news before uh, Adam Eaton and Eric Lopez were on last week. ESPN has signed the Manning Brothers. Yeah, you know ESPN in particular, but all the networks have been just slobbering, trying to get Peyton Manning into the fold. Uh, ESPN has managed to have Peyton in with his Peyton Places, which is a tremendous show that they use as one of their marquee elements of ESPN+. But now it's Peyton and Eli, an alternate broadcast of Monday Night Football 10 times during the season over the next three years. Their MNF megacast will be on ESPN2. And uh, it'll ha- also have some other players and celebrities joining the discussion on the broadcast. A host has not been named yet. But then, boy, got to feel a little bit, though, for Steve Levy, Brian Greasy, and Lewis Riddick. As, <laughs> you know, uh, they had to come in and salvage a difficult situation after the Booger McFarland Joe Tessator, Jason Witten combinations uh, did not work out. And they steadied the ship and, and, and do a solid job. But boy, when, they, when they're splashing the Manning brothers <laughs> on a sister network, oh boy, you got to feel for them a little bit as far as that goes. And uh, the clock's ticking now on Major League Baseball's trade deadline at the end of the month. Who will make the big splashy moves? The Braves have made a couple of moves, but they're not going to replace the injured Ronald Ronald Acuna Jr. That's just not going to happen. Jock Peterson gives him a good left-handed bat. Uh, Vote the catcher they uh, got from Arizona. Uh, Hopefully to hold the fort, they'll get Travis Darno back, so that would be like getting a new player, but uh, we'll see what happens. Who's, Who's the buyers and who's the sellers? Stay tuned for that. All right, as we bring in Tim Brando from Fox Sports. Tim, we're bringing you in with a uh, bumper from your old radio show, Hot Chocolates. Everyone's a winner. Of course, everyone's a winner when Timmy B is in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. I I appreciate that. It brings back a lot of memories just just hearing that. Uh, Hot Chocolate, great R&B band from across the pond. Not many people know that um that's awesome on your part no i appreciate that sir and of course uh we're getting ready to uh, kick off yet another college football season can't that's hard to believe it's just a few weeks away and uh 
as I ask you about the upcoming season, I'm going to ask you in a, in a three-part manner. Um, okay. Will we see the usual suspects? Will there be any surprise teams, maybe a fly in the ointment? And uh, <laughs> will the transfer portal have any impact on teams for the playoff run this year, you think? Oh, well, yeah, let me just take the last one first. Yeah, I think that the transfer portal is, um, there's no question in my mind that it'll play a major role uh, in college football. It's going to help a lot of uh, programs at the FBS level in the group of five. Uh, I think it will hurt FCS. My, right, they'll be really decimated, I think, in terms of some of their talent that vacated, especially since they had a competitive season in the spring and they were able to just kind of keep their bodies ready to go and and looked for greener pastures. I think that's also true with a lot of schools that were second-tier Power 5 players that were looking to improve their stock by getting with said bigger team. And when that didn't happen, and in a lot of cases it didn't, um, whoever was in their ears telling them, hey, so-and-so and so-and-so, they didn't land. And so they still needed to play, and they needed to have a Division One scholarship. And that really aided and abetted uh, programs where changes were being made, like like at my alma mater at ULM over in Monroe out of the Sunbelt. Terry Bowden is going to reconstruct his program. The foundation for it will be, in many respects, this year uh, based on the transfer portal. So it'll, it'll have a dramatic impact really everywhere um, at every level. Uh, no question in my mind. As it relates to the uh, – Usual suspects, yeah. As long as we only have four, and that's all we have, at least until 2023, you'll see the same exclusive club that's been dominating the college football playoff for such a long period of time. I do think that there are teams that uh, could play the the so-called fly-in-the-ointment role again, sort of the Coastal Carolina or BYUs of 2021. A lot of those schools fall into that category, and – who they are right now, I think there's too many really to mention. Um, uh, certainly the Mountain West uh, is going to have a big say in matters. You know, Boise State's going to get a chance against Oklahoma State relatively early in the season to get an impact win at home. Okay, they got that game on the blue field. Uh, that's a team to keep your eye on. Uh, San Jose lost a lot of its talent, plus its coach, you know, went to Arizona after they went undefeated in the Mountain West last year, but there'll be teams that fall into that category every year uh, that are, they, they just don't have the impact of say Boise back in the old BCS days because the computers propped Boise up because of strength of schedule. And that doesn't exist in this current system with just four teams. Now flies in the ointment are going to rear big time. their ugly heads when we get to 12 and you're talking about the, you know, six, championship teams and then the six highest ranked teams. Uh, I think that's really one of the reasons why, and I know you want to get into this a little bit later on, uh, one of the reasons why UCF's current leadership has decided, you know what, we're going to take that that deal with Florida now versus uh, not taking it when Danny White was there. Uh, when Danny was there and you were trying to get through, you had to be undefeated. I mean, you had no prayer with the 14 system if – if you didn't, if you had a blemish, you were done, absolutely done. But now you can afford a blemish, you know, still win your league and, and get in because we're talking about the six top champions. And the American Conference, I think, has distinguished itself as the 
as the P6 that Mike Oresco wanted it to be and that he pounded the pavement uh, over for quite some time. So, yeah, those exist out there. There's no question. And uh, I still think that uh, you're, you're going to hear me harping on this late in the season again, but we all know that so much of what I've been, uh, you know, just pounding the gavel over was finally heard. Uh, and I'm not the only one. There are several others uh, that, that said, you know what, this is just, it's, inclu- it's, it's, it's exclusionary, it's wrong, it's no longer a playoff, it's an invitational, and that's what we're going to call it. And I think that uh, the leaders of college football finally heard. You know, they finally – and they also know that they're losing money left and right uh, coming off a of COVID season. They need the additional television inventory to create more revenue streams, uh, particularly with NIL becoming a reality, which it did three weeks ago. So, you know, perfect storm, really, this offseason for all of that to come true. Were you surprised that it went to 12 and I guess COVID would be a part of it, but do you see any other reasons why the move to – push up the timetable on the on playoff expansion. Uh, give me your thoughts on that. Well, COVID definitely impacted the moving it up part of it. Uh, COVID affected everybody last year. I mean, everybody, uh, including the rights holders to the broadcasts. <laughs> Believe me, I know. Uh, I was one of the few uh, play-by-play men that got to do games from actual booths in actual stadiums last year. There weren't many of us. Uh, that being said, everybody lost money. Television lost money just as much as, uh, as anyone, if not more. And uh, so, but the added revenue that will come from additional teams and additional games in a 12-team playoff is, is really going to send a jolt into the system and I think really make college football, um, you know, the, the thing again. You know, after the BCS uh, and we were going into the college football playoff, once we were at the very early stages of that transition college football was knocking on the door of the nfl in terms of its overall popularity ratings were robust interest was great uh you know boise had pushed the envelope as the quote unquote fly in the ointment from a traditional standpoint and then the college football playoff took over and because of the system that was in place uh no checks and balances for strength of schedule those teams were – it didn't matter what any of them did. Everyone knew who the, the final teams were going to be. Uh, so, with that in mind, I think that now opening it up, and now you're talking about 12, uh, we're going to have games of enormous interest in October, late October, November, December, that in the past haven't been. Think about the, 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 the uh, conference championship games and how little interest there really has been. In, in the Big 12 and the Pac-12 in recent years. That'll be gone because um, the champion of that league, presumably, you know, even in the Pac-12, would be one of the top six teams. So that really matters. And even if you're not one of the top six teams, there are the, the six highest-ranked teams after that. So, you know, not only is there a potential of, you know, the major conferences like the SEC, the Big 12, the Big 10 getting – two, maybe even three in, all right, there's also the potential of two group of five teams, or at least what we call group of five. I hope we get rid of that um, vernacular with this system. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's no – last year, if you look at it, 
there there could have been if if the twelve team was in place, there could have been a chance to get two in, uh, which is fantastic, and uh, and and brings for the first time in the history of the sport Cinderella to the dance, yeah. which I think captivates the casual fan in a very large way. That's see the 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 fans that are so hard line, and I understand it. Uh, I'm a purist in a lot of ways. The pageantry, the history, the tradition of college football is its currency, but we've got to expand the notion of, uh, of championship caliber play to what today's modern day fan wants. And we, the fan wants to follow a playoff. They do in every other sport at every other level, except division one college football. And now we're going to have that. And I think it's going to just jettison the sport to greater heights in, in ways that I think not even those that are in charge realize at this stage. Well, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, UCF was certainly one of the uh, the teams that was uh, you know pounding the gavel as far as expansion <laughs> goes and things like that. So Danny White takes the, the uh, AD job at Tennessee. He takes Josh Heupel with him. Terry Mahajer comes in now with uh, with UCF, and uh, lo and behold, he has Gus Malzahn available. How fortunate for the Knights to have a guy of that pedigree be there at a big time of change for the school and the program. Yeah, in essence, uh, Gus sees UCF as an SEC-type school, and he's right. It is. Uh, You just don't have now the constraints of an SEC schedule, but you're going to be perceived as an SEC-type school. I think, again, going back to this new deal, you know, the multiple games for one game at your place, makes sense to the new AD, and I applaud him for for scheduling the game. And you know Gus wants it. Absolutely, Gus wants it. Those are the circles that he's been traveling in for quite some time. And no matter how tough UCF makes the schedule, it'll never be as tough as what he faced at Auburn, okay? <laughs> it, it'll, it will be a, uh, you know, hey, what, what, what else you got? Bring me some more, you know? <laughs> Whoever he can schedule non-conference – uh, to put him in a position to be better within his league, uh, he'll take on. And I'm sure that's not the first deal with an SEC team uh, that will be made. I, I think that you probably want to sprinkle it around. You don't want to play three or four of them, say like a Sunbelt school would. You know, you wouldn't want to play all your non-conference games as money games, so-called money games. You don't need to do that at UCF. You're doing okay financially. You're a big school with a huge enrollment a fantastic campus and a great facility. So you don't need to do what a, uh, you know, a Georgia state or a ULM uh, might have to do. Uh, But I think that this step is a a great one and it's win-win really. Um, I I thought it was super for um, UCF to get Gus. I think it was Gus needed to get out of Auburn. He needed a change of address and uh, some of what he's going to accomplish. I think what he wants to do from a program standpoint is certainly uh, easily done at a place like that where, you know, the, the, the player uh, pool is so large, you know, the player pool in that part of Florida is so big and it's a great time to be coming into the state really with the issues going on, it's still going on at Florida state. Um, Florida is still the big dog. I think we all know that, but that being said, um, UCF can take advantage, I think, of its timing and its positioning in the American Conference because the league itself uh, 
I don't know how your fans feel about it, but the league itself, outside your bubble, is highly respected. It's clearly the number one non-Power 5 conference. And it's also the most exposed uh, on television non-Power 5 conference. So I think you get uh, your cake and and you get to eat it too, really. With the hiring of Gus uh, in the aftermath of um, of the decision that was made to to bolt to Tennessee um, uh, by both your athletic director and uh, and your coach, uh, Josh did a great job. He had a lot of pressure on him, as you know, when, when Frost left, probably more than any coach uh, outside of the Power Five has ever had. Josh Heupel had it, and I thought he dealt with it quite well. So how do you think Gus will do in his first year? You know, Cincinnati will certainly uh, be around uh, as the, the reigning champion of the American. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, UCF certainly has to improve on defense. That was a, a big source by last year. But, you know, Gus has to be looking at his chops with a great quarterback like Dylan Gabriel. Yeah, I think having Dylan back is going to be magnificent. And at the same time, um, you, you have some time from a scheduling standpoint to get your defense uh, in a better position by the end of the year. Uh, Cincinnati is loaded, though, and they, they're bringing a, a ton of talent back. And, um, you know, they're, they're a two-minute offense away from having beaten Georgia a year ago. In fact, I, I think we, we should – I probably didn't mention it, and I should have. The performance that Cincinnati gave in the Peach Bowl last year against Georgia, I thought really helped uh, the push towards expansion in a large way because anybody that knows anything about football – college football knows that uh, if they had managed the clock more appropriately, uh, Luke Fickle, they, they would have won that football game. Uh, Georgia, Georgia barely got out of there with a W, but I think most football people knew Cincinnati was legit when that game was over. And that really helped. Uh, UCF was the same story. You know, when they beat Auburn, uh, Gus knew that. And uh, even in the LSU game, when they, when they dropped that game, uh, they were down on some personnel on defense. And that's the only issue. UCF has struggled in terms of depth. Uh, they're starting 11 on defense, usually pretty good. But once you get to the end of the year, you're down in the depth chart a little bit. And that second or third guy in an American conference uniform versus an SEC, there's still a big drop off there. So that, that's what UCF needs to work on. I no doubt believe they will. Uh, work on and uh, Cincinnati as a, as a result of Fickle's ability to recruit and particularly in that area uh, around Ohio where he's been so effective for so long as a Buckeye he loaded up you know he got the, the, the best players that couldn't get to Ohio State he got them. and that's what's really helped him well the same is going to be true obviously for UCF um, even though there's a lot of competition for talent there are only so many scholarships to go around. So uh, I, I think you're going to be in great shape with, with Gus. He knows where the talent is located in that part of the country. And conversely, you know, uh, how do you think Josh Heupel will do at Tennessee? You know, we know Danny White has a great track record of, uh, of you know, raising the level of athletic departments. And uh, he's bringing Heupel with him. And, you know, Heupel had to essentially learn on the job as a head coach here at UCF. Right. And he's going right. to a place that has high expectations and has been wanting to be relevant for the first time in a long time. Yeah, well, he's channeling his inner Oklahoma. 
You know, <laughs> I mean, he's been uh, he's he's been in that end of it before. You know, he's no longer the hunter; he's the hunted. <laughs> uh, and and at Tennessee, it doesn't matter what your, your your the past record is; they expect winning, and they expect winning immediately. And he's going to have to deal with that. It'll be hard uh, because the the program and the institution itself has been in a real state of flux for such a long period of time. They've made a ton of mistakes. And um, I guess to, to a certain extent for Josh, uh, the expectation level is high, but realistically you're inheriting a program that has got all kinds of issues with um, sanctions. Uh, you got a, a recruiting problem that will stem from those sanctions. So, whether the fans like it or not, the administration's going to have to give him, you know, a couple of years, really, not one, but at least two to get that ship righted. Uh, and because he's he's cut from that cloth, you know, he he spent time at Oklahoma and he knows what the not only as a player, but as a coach. Uh, and then over at Missouri, too, before you know the opportunity came to, to be at UCF. And um, I think he'll excite the fan base with the offense he's going to run. That's number one. You, you know, Tennessee's been – they've been without a brand, you know, without a culture from an offensive standpoint. He'll be able to do that. Uh, and I think it also helps to know that uh, he's got an AD that he's in lockstep with, you know. More oftentimes than not in, in college football, if the coach, the AD, and the president, coach, AD, or chancellor, depending on how you term it, are not on the same page – it's not going to last long. But in this case, it appears that he's really got all three. You know, he's got a president that, that really said, okay, Danny, we're letting you run this. You have autonomy. And I can't think of anyone, if I'm, if I'm Josh Heupel, I'd, I'd more want to have autonomy than, than Danny White. All right. And before I let you run, um, yeah, I know you're a huge golf fan and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and a pretty good player from what I, from what, from what we can see on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, give me your thoughts on, uh, on the open column out Marikawa wins. Uh, you know, he's only, he's, he's won two majors and each time was the first time he's played in it. That's pretty remarkable. That's amazing. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And uh, you and I are talking on the Monday after and, you know, the comparisons are already out there. You know, it is, if you look back at Tiger, you know, if you look back at where Tiger was, you know, at the same age, at 24, and, and that's premature, but it's also expected. Uh, you know, you just come to expect it now in golf. Um, the, thing, the thing that jumps out at me about Morikawa more than, than, than his superb iron play, which was off the charts, uh, how fantastic he was, around Royal St. George's, we could say the iron was kind all week <laughs> across the pond to Colin Morikawa. But um, his post-round speech, when he was introduced to the uh, patrons uh, at Royal St. George's, for a 24-year-old guy in his first event there, uh, go back and just Google Arnold Palmer's conversation with everyone after he won the first time in 60. And I don't think anyone was better than the, with the media in his generation than Arnold Palmer. Um, this kid was incredible. He immediately shifted attention away from himself and to the amateur who had won the silver medal from Germany, Schmidt, 
and gave him another moment in the sun that, you know, most young players or most players, period, would be too self-absorbed to consider. You know, he did that, number one. Um, he made reference to how wonderful it was and how he would continue to come back to the British Open. The moment he said that, I thought, uh-oh, few, few of the traditionalists there might be thinking <laughs> it's the Open Championship over here. Well, it, it didn't take him. It was almost as if I said it to myself and it went into his ear. So he circles back 30 seconds later and, and says, and, you know, the Open Championship is something we all look forward to. I was like, oh, my God, he's covered that, too. I mean, it was just incredible uh, to see what he did, Jeff. And uh, I was truly impressed. I think golf now, with, with the way John Rahm played, think about it. You got um, uh, Hideki winning the Masters. You have a 51-year-old winning the PGA. Then you have John Rahm claiming his first in dramatic fashion with back-to-back birdies at Torrey Pines. And I think John is on his way to winning a lot of other majors. Uh, what did he finish? Third, I think, maybe third or fourth. He was a, <laughs> certainly a top five finish for him here. Uh, golf is in great shape. Now, we don't have a dominant player, but, you know, Morikawa is not a long ball hitter. Rom is. Uh, DeChambeau is a long ball hitter. People were beginning to think that it was becoming a bombers-only club now, major championships. That's just not the case with Morikawa winning. He's not particularly long. He's 5'9", you know, 155, 160 pounds. He's not a big guy. Um, but he hits his irons so precisely. Uh, he, he played really a traditional game, which I think the fans across the pond really enjoyed and appreciated. So... Uh, I think golf is uh, in fantastic shape moving forward. Jordan Spieth, you know, we make the same case about Jordan back in 2015. He was in Morikawa's position. And you saw him clip off, you know, four majors. And then now, now it's been uh, a handful of years since he's won. That's as, that's as well as he's played in four years in a major championship. So having him back, uh, Justin Thomas in the loop, DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka having their little rivalry going. Uh, the drama is high, I think, in golf. And we've got a collection of great young players and still some steady eddies like Louis Oosthuizen, who you've got to figure is still smarting in his late 30s. He, he's he's got to be thinking, I've got to get my majors. I'm, I'm due. You know, I've had way too many second and third place finishes in these. And then you see a Herculean performance like Mickelson out of nowhere you know, do something that no one ever anticipated other than Phil that he'd able to uh, be able to pull off. So golf's in great shape. Well, outstanding, Tim. I appreciate your thoughts on that as well as the upcoming college football season. And you're uh, getting, uh, gosh, it's just weeks away. And uh, Three weeks away. Yeah. You know, your partner, Spencer Tillman, will be hitting the road. And yeah, which, which, you is, know what your uh, first assignment is yet? Uh, not officially. Not officially. I'll give you I'll give you a little uh, unofficial, okay? All right. I got a I got a hunch. You know, a few years ago we did Frosty's first game at Nebraska. It lasted one kick. Terry Bowden was coaching Akron, and then there was a storm that came through, and the game was canceled. We got the call. It was probably the cleanest broadcast I've ever had. Actually, <laughs> uh, this time I'm just going to take a guess. All right. I'm going to go with Texas at home for Sarkeesian's opener. All right. This is, I haven't been assigned it yet. It's just my guess. 
I think we're going to get Texas and the University of Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns, another one of those flies in the ointment. Beat Iowa State at Iowa State, you might recall last year. Um, Billy Napier returns a lot of talent to that team that won 10 games a year ago. And that is a real rough opener for Texas, okay? A real rough opener for Texas. And uh, I I have an inclination that uh, we're going to get a mulligan on those first uh, debut coaching opportunities. You know, we we didn't get to do Frosty's entire game. I'm thinking maybe they're going to give us Sark's entire game. So that's what I'm thinking we're going to get. I'm not sure. All right. Well, of course, uh, I also would be remiss if I did not congratulate you on your induction to the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. It was a first time uh, ambassadors award that they're not going to give out annually. And I was truly humbled by it. Uh, Jeff, it's, um, you know, it does make you take stock in, you know, where you were, uh, the journey traveled, you know, the journey's the best part, what I always say. And, uh, the guys at the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame do it right, man. We got the full treatment, and uh, it was uh, humbling and gratifying, and uh, I'm forever grateful to them. Thank you for mentioning it. You're quite welcome, and thank you for the generosity of your time uh, being on my program once again. Always appreciate it. Happy to do it, buddy. Call me anytime. And back with our closing TV theme right after this. No Republicans, no Democrats, no team from Washington, no team with a star on the side of their head. We don't even talk about alpha and beta storms around here. And if you believe all of that, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Captain and Company in the morning, join me 9 to noon, weekday mornings on OldSchool101.com because class is always in session around here, virus or no virus. That was a theme from Night Court, aired on NBC from 1984 to 1992. The setting was the night shift of the Manhattan Municipal Court, presided over by young, unorthodox judge Harry T. Stone, played by comic and magician Harry Anderson. Of course, he had made a name for himself as the comedic magician. Prior to Night Court, had several Saturday Night Live appearances, including a a recurring role as conman Harry the Hat on Cheers. And on the Night Court series, a very young for a new judge, only 34 when he took the bench, got his assignment because the outgoing mayor made a huge number of appointments on his last day. Harry was the only person on the judges list who answered the call and accepted the nomination. Uh, He loved old movies, vocal in his disdain for modern music, especially Barry Manilow. And of course, he idolized Mel Torme, the great smooth crooner. A number of folks uh, over the uh, years uh, played portrayed parts. Uh, the public defender, Gail Strickland, was only in the pilot episode. Paula Kelly as Liz Williams in season one. She only made it through ten episodes. Ellen Foley as Billy Young in season two was brought in as the public defender and romantic interest for Judge Stone during season two. And then the 
public defender we all remember, Marky Post, as Christine Sullivan in seasons three through nine, uh, did not become a regular until later in the third season. She was also on The Fall Guy at the time. And of course, she was uh, somewhat honest and somewhat naive and a foil and a uh, <laughs> uh, desire of one prosecutor, uh, Reinhold Daniel Fielding Elmore, Daniel R. Dan Fielding, John Larroquette, the great John Larroquette playing that part, uh, the sex-obsessed narcissist, narcissistic prosecutor, easy for me to say, who would do just anything, about anything, to get a woman to sleep with him, and uh, also hinted that he frequented dominatrixes. So, uh, and of course, he was the source of many witty and sometimes cruel remarks regarding every other character, although he occasionally did show compassion. The bailiffs on the show, Richard Mole as Bull Shannon. He was the seemingly dim-witted Hulk-like figure, but he was actually patient, gentle, and childlike, and very protective of Judge Stone, and, of course, known for his catchphrase that probably still gets used a lot today, unknowingly by folks. Okay. And, uh, of course, he'd slap his hand on his forehead when he realized he had a, made a mistake. Selma Diamond was uh, Selma Hacker in Season 1 and 2, a chain-smoking older bailiff, and having admitted to having as many as six husbands, and she died of cancer shortly after season two, and they did acknowledge the death on the series. Florence Howell played Flo, Flo Kleiner as the replacement for uh, Selma, very similar in age and personality, but loved motorcycles and heavy music. She also died of cancer that after season three, and then the bailiff for the remaining seasons was Marsha Warfield, a comedic actress as Roz Russell, the tough, no-nonsense, usually had that fearsome image and very sharp tongue. The court clerks, well, Karen Austin uh, was Lana Wagner in season one, and of course she was also a uh, uh, supposedly a romantic interest for Judge Stowe. And then the man we all come to know and love, Mac Robinson, played by Charles Robinson, the Vietnam War, War veteran, easygoing, pragmatic, the most sober character on the show, good sense of humor, usually Getting the last laugh at Dan <laughs> at his expense. And always wore the cardigan plaid shirt and knit tie. And uh, by the end of the series, he left his job to pursue his dream of going to film school and becoming a director. And, you know, I, I've, had, I've used TV themes to eulogize people who have passed recently. You know, we think of Gavin McLeod most recently. I did not know this until after I had done this uh, little Wikipedia search on Night Court that uh, Charles Robinson actually just uh, passed away. Uh, believe a little over a week ago. So uh, may Mac rest in peace. Night Court, our TV theme for this week. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Allen underscore 88, on Facebook at Jeff Allen 88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.